it's recording now. Just okay. hit the pause button when you're done. Okay. I need, there was more than one button on this. I need help with. Last night, unfortunately, my technical ineptitude was greatly underestimated. Didn't, didn't, that was my fault. I didn't get that, didn't get that done. Uh, yesterday evening, we, we spoke about the ongoing need for restoration and how really restoration is the story of God's people. Ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, uh, there's been an ongoing uh, restoration effort. This morning, I want to look at a particular restoration movement in Scripture that I, I think is a wonderful source of inspiration for us, and that is the restoration movement that's recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. When the people come back out of captivity, they return to the land and they set about restoring God's way of doing things. And they're really using the book of Chronicles as their sort of their book of Acts to go back and to see how things were done. They're drawing on those scriptures and, of course, uh, the, the rest of, of scripture at that time to, to get back to God's way of doing things. And I, So I want to look at that process this morning because I think we can learn from it. We can learn from their, uh, what they did right, and we can learn from some of the mistakes they made and some of the difficulties that they had to uh, overcome. And so that's what we're going to be uh, thinking about this morning, uh, when they when they came out of captivity, they are essentially stepping into the flow of God's purpose. So they are they are doing what they are pursuing God's intent for them because the return from captivity had been had been prophesied in Scripture and going way, way back, right? All the way back, we can go back to, uh, we could look at Deuteronomy 28 as well, but in Leviticus 26, 40 through 42, God says through Moses, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. And so he talks about remembering the covenant, and then he specifies the part of the covenant he's going to remember, the land promise, not just that. But he's going to bring them back to the land if they will turn back to the Lord. In the time of Isaiah, the prophet, God speaks through Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 28. He says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And so Isaiah prophesied of the fact that when Cyrus came to power, in Medo-Persia, that he would send God's people back to the land. They would rebuild Jerusalem. They would rebuild the temple. And uh, in the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 10, 11, Jeremiah actually gives a time frame for God's uh, intent. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And so God says, I've got a plan for you, and my plan is a good plan. That's a profound understatement, right? God intends good for us if we'll get on board. And so as toward the end of that time, as Daniel is anticipating their return to the land in Daniel chapter 9, he goes back and he looks at what Moses had to say, and he looks at what Jeremiah has to say, he even alludes to those passages, and he begins to pray that God will indeed fulfill his intent and bring his people back and do for them what he says he is going to do for them. In Daniel chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so Daniel goes back, he looks at the scriptures, he says, God, here's what you're going to do. I, I, I sure hope you're going to do it. We don't deserve it, but I sure hope you're going to do it. And he goes on to say that very thing in Daniel 9, 11, and 12, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. So, David says, look, Lord, you did what you said you were going to do. You punished us in the way you said you were going to punish us. Now restore us in the way you're, you said you were going to restore us. And Daniel 9, 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. And so they had to get on board with God's plan and actually return if any of this was going to happen. And God made the way. God opened the door. God did everything he said he was going to do. But the fact is, the people had to get up, leave Babylon, go back to their ruined city in Jerusalem, and roll up their sleeves and start working. And But those that work was driven by God's promises and God's vision. And that, that's, the, that's the first thing that we have to understand. When we restore God's way of doing things, then we're going to be fulfilling God's purposes. And those, those two things are in constant interaction. We, we've got to be aware of God's purposes as they're set forth in Scripture. And then we've got to be aware of God's way of realizing those purposes. And we've got to pursue those ways. Or we're not, we're not going to get where we're going. Somebody will get there. God will find the people who are interested. The only question is, are we going to be part of that? So we, we, we've got to be focused on God's ends and God's means. And they, in this time, were focused on God's ends and God's means. And it was recognizing God's vision for them and pursuing God's vision for them in the way that God had specified that drove this whole 
restoration movement. Daniel understood that, and Daniel prayed about it, and I tell you, there's not a better place to start <coughs> trying to restore God's way of doing things than getting on our knees and pleading with God for the help, the strength, the wisdom, the perseverance, the courage to do what needs to be done. You know, I was talking to, to Andrew last night. He, he observed probably what we've all observed. You know, we're just kind of inadequate. And the, the reason we feel that way is because we're inadequate. Where that comes from. Our adequacy is not, it's not found in ourselves. It's in God. He's adequate. And, you know, if we're going to be plain about it, can we get the job done? No. No, we can't. But God can get the job done in us if we'll just cooperate. And they made the decision on the front end to cooperate. So the restoration, it was, the return was prophesied, the restoration was regulated by scripture and, and there's some things there's some interesting things that that go on uh, in this and so one of the things that is restored and I, I want to focus in on this for this, this part of the lesson is the feast of booze and the feast of booze was a feast that they that commemorated their time in the wilderness and and God caring for them and providing for them in the wilderness and there are two records of the restoration of the Feast of Booths. One of them is in Ezra chapter 3. The other one is in Nehemiah chapter 8. And just, I'm sure most of you are aware of this, but Ezra and Nehemiah was originally one book. And it was divided into two because when it was translated into Greek, it got too long to put on one scroll, and so they, they split it up. But Ezra and Nehemiah was originally a single scroll, a single work. Uh, and so these two books function together. And in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, notice this, as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And so they did it, they offered the sacrifice on the Feast of Booths as it is written according to the ordinance as each day required. And so we learned again in Leviticus 23 that the feast was to remember that God had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, it happened at the time of the harvest. And so they're celebrating the fact that God had provided for them and God continued to provide for them. And the sacrifices are prescribed in Leviticus uh, 29, 12 through 40. In 29, 13, it says, You shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma, 13 bulls, 2 rams, 14 male lambs, 1 year old, which are without defect. And then the number of the bulls is diminished by one each day of the feast. That's how that goes. I'm not going to read the, the whole prescription for the sacrifices this morning. But they did it just as it was uh, in, intended uh, to be done. And so, that's, that's great. They, they've restored the Feast of Booths. Or have they? So we get over to Nehemiah chapter 8, and something really interesting comes up. In Nehemiah 8, 13, 
We begin reading there in Nehemiah 8.13. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. And then if we drop down just a little bit, and I want us to kind of try and wrap our heads around this, verses 17 and 18. It says, the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day they had a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Okay, so... In Ezra 3, they set out to restore the Feast of Booths. And they get the sacrifices just exactly how God said to do. But the thing they missed about the Feast of Booths is you're supposed to live in booths. Now, I don't know about you, but that would seem to be to be one of the more obvious parts of the Feast of Booths that there were booths involved. And I don't know how they hadn't used booths in the Feast of Booths for 800 years. Think about that. 800 years and no booths in the Feast of Booths. Again, it would seem to be one of the more obvious parts. Feast of Booths. Why do they, they call it the Feast of Booths? I, I don't know, but let's, let's get the sacrifices right. Well, good. That's good. They needed to get the sacrifices right. They needed to do it. But they, they left out the booths, which is sort of the whole point of the memorial, that God is God is caring for them and providing for them when they don't they don't have a roof over them. At least not in any kind of permanent one. And but they hadn't and done that actually, and then they start reading it and say, Hey, do you know did you did you know that we're supposed to live in booze during the feast of booze? You're kidding me. I thought that was embarrassing. Really? Yes! Let's do it that way. And, and I'm making a little bit light of the booze in the Feast of Booze. But I'll tell you what I think. I don't think we're any smarter on average than they were. I just don't believe it. I don't I don't think we're modern and smart and they're primitive and dumb. I don't I don't believe that for a minute. Because I don't believe in progress. Because we have solved exactly zero of our problems over the last three or four thousand years on our own. So I don't think we're any smarter than they are. So what I think is, if they miss the obvious, we could miss the obvious. So I think the first question when we said about restoration is we need to go back to Scripture with fresh eyes and read God's Word, read it intensively, and ask the question, what have we missed?
it may it may appear obvious. Maybe there's something obvious there that in the past we've explained away that we need to take more seriously. What have we missed? What we what we don't need to do is say, well, we've always done it this way. I remember when I first became a Christian that one of the things I was warned against is people who say we've always done it this way. And then several years later, I was working with some guys. We were going to go overseas together. And a couple of guys set forth a plan of how we were to carry out the work. Uh, then a couple of us raised some questions about that. And the answer I got was, we've always done it this way. And I said, wait a minute. You are the very ipe that told me not to listen to people who said we've always done it this way. And that's your answer? What in the world? That's not a good answer. And so the net result of that is we wished each other well, but we we operated in separate venues, let's say. They went to one town and we went to another. That's not a our traditions, and everybody's got traditions, right? Everybody's got traditions. You do something more than six times, it's a tradition. Whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with traditions, by the way. Sometimes the tradition is just the, the best way of doing something. But our tradition is never the standard. That's what we've got to remember. Acknowledge that it exists, recognize that it's not the standard. And if our tradition bumps into God's will, then God's will has got to win that conflict. That's what we've got to realize. They had had a way of observing the Feast of Booze, but it wasn't God's way of observing the Feast of Booze. I'm sure it was more convenient not to go out into the hills and drag all that stuff back and make a booze in your backyard. But that was God's way. And for 800 years, they hadn't done it. And somebody said, what says booze here? That's what we better do. That's what we better do. And so we don't, there's never a time to say about restoration. I'm sorry, I've gotten behind here. There's never a time to say, we got it all figured out, we got it done, we got we got that sorted, we don't need to go back and look at that anymore. Because we might have missed the obvious. There's always that possibility. We need to be humble enough. To, we need to be strong enough to stand by our convictions, the convictions that are based on Scripture. But we've got to be humble enough to always go back to Scripture and say, is there more? Is there more we need to learn? Is there more we need to do? Is there something we've missed? That, that process is never finished. And they are, they are not to be laughed at because they missed the booze and the feast of booze. They're to be admired that they kept going back and kept looking and finally got it right because they kept trying. And we're going we're gonna to miss some stuff. That, that's inevitable. You look at the book of Acts. And, and the church in the book of Acts, the first 11 chapters, they go from problem to problem to problem to problem to problem. And every time they have a problem, they grow. And they grew because they handled their problems God's way. They didn't grow because they didn't have any problems. I've got a know a fellow down in Tennessee who used to be a, a ranger, an airborne ranger. And when they were in training, he had a commanding officer. And when they were in training, 
sometimes problems would come up in training if you'd go to his commanding officer and say, we got a problem, and his commanding officer would always say the same thing. He'd say, sir, we have a problem. He'd say, good. That's good. Because you know what they're going to do in training? They're going to figure out how to overcome problems. Now, if you can go find a place where they don't have problems, you don't need to figure out how to do that. But I haven't been to that place. And that's a good thing, because if I went to that place, I'd have a problem. And I'd hate to ruin that for them. I really would. I would feel bad about that. But I'm pretty sure I would. So I'm, I'm not even looking for it. I want to stay away from them. Those folks are doing fine. But in my world, they're a problem. And we need to learn how to overcome those problems. But problems create endurance, and build wisdom. Problems are opportunities. They understood that. <clears throat> Ezra understood that. Nehemiah understood that. And they led the people to understand that. We've got to understand. If we're going to restore New Testament Christianity, really restore New Testament Christianity, we're going to have to understand. The job's never done. We're going to encounter problems. We're going to make mistakes. Sometimes the issue is not where you are. It's which direction you're headed in. I'd much rather be the guy who's a long way from where he should be headed in the right direction than the guy who's close to where he should be headed in the wrong direction. I think the direction makes all the difference. And then, finally, their renewed commitment was motivated by Scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, he, when Ezra comes back to the land, he leads the people in, in renewing the covenant. And the, the Feast of Booze that we read about was just a, a small part of this, really. In Nehemiah 8.1, it says, All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And down in verse 3, it said, He read it, before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people for he was standing above all the people and when he opened it, the people stood up. They stood up and they were attentive to the law and they were attentive to the law as long as he read it. They had a love for God's word. And they wanted, to, they wanted to hear it, they wanted to know it, they wanted to understand it. Verse 8, it says, He read from the book of the law, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And so they had a profound desire to understand God's law, reverence God's law, and then they, they made a commitment. And I love this in Nehemiah 9. That the reading of the law led to something. You know, because sometimes we'll hear a lesson or a Bible class with a boy, well, that's really good. And we'll, we'll talk about it, think about it, and then, you know, after time kind of kind of going our way, you know, somebody told a story about the father who went to his, his little girl and said, you need to clean your room. And uh, 
She said, okay, I'll, I'll clean my room. Next day, he went to her and he, he said, uh, did you clean your room? She said, no, but, but Dad, i tell you what we did. A group of us got together and we talked about what it would be like to clean our room. Now, did she obey her father? Well, no, of course not. But sometimes that's what happens with Christians. We get together on various occasions and talk about what it would be like to obey God without ever obeying God. You know, maybe that's what they were doing for 800 years. They were talking about what it would be like to have boots without ever, you know, having to go to the trouble of going up into the hills and get the branches and the leaves and bring all that stuff back down and make boots. They said, well, we, you know, we talked about what that'd be like, and that's really the intent of all this. No, it, it's not actually the intent of all this. The intent of all this is for us to do what God said to do. That's the intent of all this. It's not complicated. It's difficult. It's not complicated. It's dead simple. And talking about doing God's will is not doing God's will. And and they don't they don't actually talk about it. They actually do it. In Nehemiah nine one through three. Now on the twenty fourth day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth with dirt upon them. Descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers while they stood in their place and they read from the book of the law their God for a fourth of the day and for another fourth of the day they confessed and worshipped their God. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like putting off the old man of sin, changing your thinking, and putting on the new man. But just the way Paul talks in Ephesians 4 later than when we've read, but same process. They repented. They meditated on the law of God. They they transformed their thinking. And then they got about the business of worshiping God and serving God. And in the remainder of chapter 9, they remember what God has done for them. And they remember how they have rebelled. And they renew the covenant. And they, they do this in a, just a wonderful way. In, in Nehemiah 9.38, it says, now because of this, we're all making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document are the names of the leaders, our Levites and our priests. And so they wrote down what they were going to do to serve God and they signed it. They signed on the dotted line. They took an oath to obey God. Now, actually, in, in early Christian history, there are a number of statements about the fact that Christians come together on the first day of the week and bind themselves with an oath to obey the Lord. So that, that kind of thinking apparently carried over in some shape or form. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that we necessarily have to write down what we're going to do to obey the Lord, but what I am suggesting is God expects a commitment. And there's no question about that. God expects a commitment. And He expects when we say yes, He expects yes to mean yes. And He expects when we say no, no to mean no. We say, when we say no to sin, He expects no to mean no. And when we say yes to righteousness, He expects yes to mean yes. So we, we need to make that commitment. Now, there's a, there's a list of the names of the people who signed it in Nehemiah 10, 1 through 27. And then 
In Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29, it says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Now I want you to notice that. They took on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now that would have looked something like calling down the judgment of God on themselves if they did not keep this commitment. And the formal way of doing that, it doesn't say they necessarily did this here, but we see this other places in the scripture. The formal way to do that is they would cut animals in two. And they would walk between the pieces of the animals, and they would say as they walk between the pieces of the animals, may this be done to me, and worse also, if anything but death keeps me from my commitment to the Lord. In other words, to put that in plain old Kentucky, May I become roadkill if I don't do what God told me to do. That, that's the. May God strike me down and leave me rotten on the side of the interstate if I don't do what God told me to do. That, that's what they did. They made that kind of commitment to keep the law of God. And so, what we're back to is what we said last night. Restoration happens in the hearts and minds of God's people. And it goes beyond just restoring times and means to making a heartfelt commitment to doing what God said to do. And it, it was done collectively. But the collective effort required individual commitment. And I, you know, we've got an idea in this country, and then I want to, we've got a, we've got a few minutes here, I'm going to open it up for questions, if that's okay. Oh, uh, we've got an idea in this country that, you know, what I do in my own time is my own business. And that's, that doesn't affect anybody else, so it shouldn't, nobody else ought to be worried about it. Is that right? Because let's say, let's say I'm doing my own thing and minding my own business, and part of doing my own thing and minding my own business is I'm not giving particular attention to reading and studying God's Word. I'm just going about everyday business of life. And a situation comes up where you need some help and you need some wisdom, and I'm right there beside you. But I don't have the help or the wisdom because I hadn't been paying attention to what God said. And now all of a sudden, even though I should be, even though I'm obligated to be, I'm not in a position to help you because I haven't fulfilled my personal responsibility as a Christian to know God and know God's Word. Now, is what I do on my own time really my own business? Or did I just fail you? I just failed you. That's the answer to that. I was not 
the brother in Christ that you needed me to be because I didn't attend to my own spiritual development the way I should have. And the fact is, when we come together in a family and we call one another brother and sister, there is an implicit obligation involved in that. And part of that obligation is I need to be the disciple of Christ that God wants me to be and that you need me to be. And you need to be the disciple of Christ that God wants you to be and I need you to be. Because there's going to come a time when I'm going to need you. I'm going to call you or I'm going to stand beside you and I'm going to say, what should I do? How should I handle this? We need one another. You know, there's a there's actually another group of people who have a great deal of similarity in some ways to us. Uh, they have regular meetings, which they call church. And, and in this group of people, uh, if you miss church three times, uh, they take you out back and give you a beat down. And I, I don't mean rhetorically, I mean literally. And they have a saying amongst them, don't don't bro me till you know me. And that is there's an expectation of brotherhood. It's outlaw motorcycle gangs, in case you're wondering what. Um, but they have a code they live by. And everybody's expected to live by the code. Now, I'm not saying the code is good. But they, they have recognized some truths there. They've recognized that they're dependent on one another. They need to be able to count on one another being there. And they need to be able to count on one another looking out for one another. And, and I, I'll admit, I have no interest in outlaw motorcycle games. Despite my two-wheel proclivities, that's not a direction I want to go in. But I like the don't grow me till you know. I really do, because we need to we need to know one another. We need to be there for one another. And our one another needs to be a function of our commitment to the Lord. So we got just a couple minutes before we need to to break here. Any thoughts, questions, comments, other perspectives, angry rebuttals, anything?
Yeah. Well, and I would say, you know, I think part of the thing with fasting, and, and certainly I, I agree with you 100%, Christians need to be fasting. Sometimes that's individual, sometimes it's collective. We see both in the New Testament. It's collective in Acts 13, for instance, when they send up Paul Barnum. And probably more of that needs to be done. I, I do know of a number of Christians who fast. What they don't do is talk about it. And they don't, they don't dirty their face and tear their clothes and advertise it. And so sometimes I think some of that flies under the under the radar, but certainly more could be done. And that's something we need to talk probably talk about more, teach more uh, on. As for elders, I you know one of the things I think we've done where we've we've missed it is we have spent a lot of time in teaching disqualifying men instead of qualifying them. Now let me explain what I mean by that. We we say, hey, we need some elders, and we look around the congregation and we say, well, not this guy because he doesn't have this, and not this guy because he doesn't have this, and not this guy because he doesn't have this. And instead, what we should have been doing is working with those guys 15, 20 years earlier to help them have all those things. We, we, we start in that process way, way too late. The time to start equipping a man to be an elder is when he's early in his marriage, when he's first got little children, to get him to start thinking about the kind of man he needs to become spiritually so that he can serve in that capacity as a shepherd and get that as a goal in the minds of young men so that when they are old men, they are equipped to do the work that God expects older men to do. Because the fact is, my father-in-law made this point years and years ago, and it really stuck with me. The fact is, most Christian men marry. And most married couples have children. And so where do elders come from? Well, they come from committed Christian men who've married and have children. That's where they come from. So if we go... If a, if a church goes for generation after generation after generation with no shepherds, it seems to me some kind of pivot needs to happen. Something needs to. Not not everybody's going to be equipped. Not everybody's going to be qualified according to scriptures. But over time, it seems like the law of averages would kick in if you're doing things right. And so I I agree with you 100%. That's an area where we need to we need to work on restoring New Testament Christianity, fasting in. And you know, any any other thoughts, comments? Maybe you got the other perspectives on what I just said. Either. But if you disagree with me, it won't it won't hurt my feelings. I have a. 23-year-old son who's in engineering school disagreeing with me is his hobby. I'm accustomed to it. I will say we agree on the important things, for which I'm grateful. All right, well, uh, do we have a, somebody for a closer prayer?
let's so let's have a closing prayer and break for a few minutes.